All righty, we're back for our Q&A time. I've always viewed Dr. Kevorkian's mercy killings as the request of the terminally ill individual to be a, uh, a humane means of hastening the inevitable end of life by allowing those who so choose to sidestep the pro progression and deterioration and suffering. Your blog, The Cult Culture of Godlessness, A Cancer Destroying the World. Anybody read my blog this week? mentions those who are mentally ill and uh, requesting the end of their life. I'm addressing specifically the terminally ill. Would God honor their decision and choice? I can't answer that. I don't speak for God. I, I have no idea. I can tell you what I'm speaking about is the corruption of society, devaluing human life, particularly in the field of medicine, where in societies all over America, the first rule historically of the ethical physician is first do no harm. And part of the uh, Hippocratic Oath is that physicians don't assist, don't take actions to kill their patients. And what's happening in the world is because of the corruption of the godless, there is no moral, understand, morality comes from a moral connection with a moral God. Mm -hmm. If we evolve from lower life forms, there is no such thing as morality. It's expediency. It's survival of the, of the fittest. It's strong rule. Uh, and, and what's happened is the godless have taken over the world. The, the ethical and moral standards of valuing humanity and human life have been eroded. And now their arguments are being made based on the guise of mercy that it is actually ethical, moral, and righteous to actively use your ability to kill people. And in, in Canada, 10 to 15,000 people every year are being killed by their physicians. Every year. My understanding is that the Canadian government sent out a letter for all of the government retirees that as part of their health benefit, they can request that their doctor kill them as their health benefit. You are now retired. And as part of the health benefit, we want you to know that you can request from your doctor medicine to kill you. You think that has anything to do with their, the well-being of the, the retiree or maybe the well-being of how much they're paying in retirement fees? Okay? So th this, is, this is what happens when we leave uh, the, the, the moral basis of God's design for life. Let, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except the falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Uh, this is uh, um, from the second uh, quarter, I think. Uh, it appears that evil is being open, openly unveiled more and more. This person is asking, or am I imagining it? Could this be what the text means by the son of perdition revealed? Or is this referencing Satan appearing as a fake Jesus? Also, can you expand on the meaning of the falling away? So this is quoting, I think, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter four, four. 4, is it? Yeah, 3, whatever. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's the, um, the man of sin appearing. Uh, don't let anyone deceive you in any way that the uh, second coming, the, uh, the appearing of the Lord will not happen until the, the uh, man of perdition comes and falling away and so forth. I think the falling away is primarily talking about the, the, the church, the corruption of the church. And this man of perdition sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And God's temple that, that Paul writes is, is not the temple in Jerusalem. 
It's certainly not the temple in heaven. He's not saying that the man of sin rides into heaven, casts Jesus off his throne and sits on his throne in heaven and claims to be God. This is referring to what happened in, in the dark ages, that within Christianity, the spirit temple, the concept of who God is got displaced and replaced with a Roman Caesar concept through the introduction of imperial law. When Roman law and the way Roman, Rome rules, system of rules that are enforced by punishment, was accepted into orthodoxy and Christianity, and Christianity began to teach that God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome, he makes up rules and he punishes rule breakers, then we have now the man of sin setting himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, in the spirit temple in the hearts and minds of people. And, and so that's what I think is the falling away, and that's what I think, the, uh, and, the, and then the revealing of this son of perdition is what you actually see happening in the world right now. When you actually go against design law, against the actual laws of reality, that things function and are health upon and make up all these arbitrary rules based on emotions and feelings because it just feels good and your feelings become the rule of authority, okay? Uh, then well, you have chaos because feelings do not determine reality. You, you may feel like you're, you're a, a person who is not from planet Earth, what they call star people. There are people who claim, I, I'm not actually human. I have an alien intelligence living inside my body. And they're called star people. You may feel like a furry. I'm not really human. I'm an animal in a human body. You may be a biological male and feel like a woman. It's all the same. Your feelings do not determine objective reality. What they tell you is that if, if you are that far off of objective reality, then there's something wrong. There's an identity disturbance there. And so that becomes a symptom of something that's out of kilter that needs compassionate, loving intervention and healing. Doesn't need condemnation, doesn't need stoning, but it certainly doesn't need to become the standard that all the actual rational people have to live by. And so God is permitting this to happen to reveal to us the chaos, the disorder, the dysfunction that happens when you walk away from his design law principles for life. So that there's a shaking happening. And people are shaking out of this uncertainty into either complete solidification into a delusional world, or they're solidifying into creator worship, objective reality, how things actually work. Peace and blessings. I have heard it said that it isn't once saved, that it isn't once saved that means one is always saved. I think they mean that it isn't once you're saved that you're always saved. So if one can be saved today and not saved tomorrow, was one really saved yesterday? <laughs> Seeing that God knows the end from the beginning. Well, this is an interesting question because it mixes a lot of different things that actually don't connect. God's foreknowledge of who's saved and not saved has no bearing on who's saved or not saved. Many people get really struggle with foreknowledge. They think if God already knows, then, then I don't have a choice. And that's because they, they mistake foreknowledge with causality. Knowing what someone will do isn't the same as the cause of them doing it. Sometimes a parent can see a child and they know their child is about to take the cookie <laughs> But the parents' knowledge doesn't cause them to do it. Or if you and I had a time machine and we traveled into the future and we watched the next Super Bowl 
and we saw all the plays, we know every score, and we, and, and we know every fumble and interception and who did what, and we come back today and we have that foreknowledge. Our knowledge of that event does not cause the players to throw that pass, intercept, run this fast, and do all the things that they have to do in governance themselves to make those things a reality. Their individual choices and lives that they live to that point and then act out on that field are what cause it our knowledge doesn't determine it at all. We're just aware of it. So God's foreknowledge is, is actually has no bearing in this question. So the question then is, can a person choose to be saved and then choose to be lost? That's the question. And so the, this, is, this is going back to, what is the basis of your security and salvation? Love and trust. Love and trust. My own personal view is that a salvation is a love relationship with God not based on deeds or actions. And so many people have this question because they view it through the penal legal model of deeds and actions. And the deeds and actions being things like, okay, I accept Jesus as my Savior. All my sins are washed away and there's no sins in the record book right now. They've all been cleansed. And then three hours later, somebody stepped on my toe and I said bad words. And then I got hit by a bus before I could fall on my knees and ask forgiveness. <laughs> And this is how it's often presented, that somehow I'm now lost because I've, I've come up short. This is ridiculous. Um, what causes a person to be lost is to actually break trust with God, not in a moment of reflexive irritation or sleep deprivation, because the saved person who has a moment where they fall short, immediately when they're aware that what they did, they're grieved in their heart because they, they say like Romans 7, oh, what a wretched man am I. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And sometimes the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. In their heart, I desire to do God's will, but sometimes I don't find I have the ability to carry it out. And so that man has a new heart and right spirit. They're not lost, but they live in a physiology that have certain habituated patterns that sometimes in certain situations reflexively come out and they don't even intend them to come out because neural wiring hasn't been re restructured yet. Okay? These people are not lost, but... Does that mean a person couldn't choose to say, God, I've been walking with you for a while and I've decided I really like the ways of the world better. I don't want you in my life anymore. Ooh. See, we never lose the ability to throw God off and break trust with him and choose another God to be our God. We always have that ability. My personal view is that people who've actually come to know God in this world from the world of sin don't do that. Nah. Because, because, because it, it, it's like once you've come, folks, once you've come to really know and experience design law, can you ever go back to the legal system? No. no. You just can't do it. No. it, it you just can't. It's not true. It is something... You would rather die than to go back to that system because you've been changed. And that's what I think real salvation is. You just, you just won't go back. But you don't lose the freedom to. You just won't do it. How do you understand Isaiah 45, 7? God creates evil. Do you know the, the text... The text says, Isaiah 45, 7, I form light, I create darkness, I make peace, I create evil, I, the Lord, do all these things and wonder if God create, uh, and, and wondered if God create evil. That, that was, excuse me, that's not the quote. That was somebody, the quote ended, I, the Lord, do all the things, and the person asked, I'm wondering if God creates evil. Okay. So this um, question I actually answered in a blog some years ago. And so if you have questions like this in between our class, go to our website and type in um, create, God Creates Evil, and you would find a blog that already answers this question. And, uh, and, and in the answer, 
This actually is a translation issue, as you would likely expect it to be. And the Hebrew translated uh, create is the Hebrew word, and I've got the, the concordance here that explains all this, bara, B-A-R-A, create. And it can mean two different things. One, to create, as in creating light out of darkness and so forth. But the second meaning for the Hebrew word is, and this is a quote, to break down, tear down, cut down like wood, unquote, from, from the uh, lexicon. That's the other meaning of the same word. And so the, the translators have to choose, do I translate this B-A-R-A Hebrew word as create or tear down? If you do the other word, then it, it reads this way. I form light and I tear down and destroy darkness. I make peace and I tear down and cut down like wood everything that is evil. I am the author uh, of the destruction of evil. That's much better. So that's what, that's what the text means. Should we support historical societies such as AHS? Does that stand for Adventist Historical Society? Because no. I don't know. I'm, a, I, I'm trying to. They just put in their eight. Oh, Adventist Health System. It, because it says historical societies. Oh. It says, should we support historical societies such as AHS? Maybe we shouldn't answer since we don't know what AHS is. Um, so, okay, we'll skip that one since we don't know what that is. All right, please help me understand the following by Ellen White because it seems to contradict the notion of fear entering the mind. Quote, Satan represented God as a deceiver, as one who would debar his creatures from the benefit of his highest gift. The angels heard with sorrow and amazement this statement in regard to the character of God as, God, as Satan represented him as possessing his own miserable attributes. But Eve was not horror-stricken, to hear the holy and supreme God thus falsely accused. So I think what this question is, because Eve was not horror-stricken, he's suggesting she should have had fear and didn't have fear or something like this. Horror-stricken at hearing this, Eve was not horror-stricken. She wasn't afraid to hear this, in other words. Um, but that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about, because I think from the lesson that I was talking about, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran in here because they were afraid. That's a self-reference fear of what's going to happen to me. Eve didn't have that fear. She also didn't have this sense of horror uh, of what Satan was saying about God and God's character. It didn't offend her because why? She was still so new in her relationship with God. She hadn't solidified yet in her experience the certainty of who God was because she was a new creature. And so she, the angels that, that were loyal to God had come to know him and to suggest such thing was offensive as if you would be offended if somebody said something ugly about your spouse, okay? And so that's all I think that means. My question in, is in regard to original sin. Do SDAs believe this or not? How does it affect our understanding of the death of Jesus and the gospel? First off, I'm not gonna speak for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I will speak for what I understand. And uh, I, I have no idea, uh, you, within the, the field of Adventism, you might find a lot of different beliefs. I don't know. Original sin, though, ha to me, has a special definition in the context of Roman Catholicism where it carries certain legal connotations associated with it. So it doesn't necessarily mean what you might just pick the two words to mean, original meaning Adam's first sin, and that all of us are born in sin and conceived in sin. That's not what it means that the term original sin. Original sin means that all of us are condemned to hell and uh, legally so by Adam's sin, and we're born in a state of condemnation 
uh, and the church then must act with um, either sacrament, baptism, or last rites if an infant dies, because if the church doesn't act with the baptism of the infant or the, or the last rites, then that soul is condemned to spend all eternity in hell because of the guilt it inherited from Adam. It's condemned guilty and must be punished. That's what original sin means in that context. We don't believe any of that because none of it's legal, okay? So no, we don't believe in that if that's what you mean by the language. If you mean that Psalms 51.5, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity because Adam and Eve sinned. They actually changed physiologically, spiritually their own condition and they became filled with fear and self-centeredness and God had already endowed them with a, an ability, a capacity to procreate beings in their own image so that when they procreated beings, those beings were born with the same attributes they inherited from their parent, which is fear and self-centeredness, then yes, we are all born with a condition we didn't choose, like an HIV-infected man, an HIV-infected woman, have a child born HIV-infected, there is no guilt for that child. We are not born with guilt, which is what original sin means. We are born with a terminal condition that requires remedy, and without remedy results in ruin and death. And that's the difference. I believe in pilgrimages. I think the Christian life is a pilgrimage, but I can also see the benefit of doing pilgrimage. Is this something the Bible suggests is important, and do we need to do them as Christians? I guess it really depends on how you define the word. Words have meanings. If you think a pilgrimage is something that you have to go on in some legalistic, mechanical way, like they were doing at the time of Luther, and they had to go to Rome, and they had to go up the steps, and they had to kiss each step, or in Islam, they have to take at least one pilgrimage in a lifetime to a certain city, or they can't get to heaven. If you put pilgrimages in systems like that, then no. If a pilgrimage is something that you need to take because you're struggling with something in your life, and the pilgrimage is a spiritual action that you need to work out like, like Jacob night through trouble or something, then that type of a spiritual pilgrimage, yes, we all need to take, um, a pilgrim's progress, so to speak, in the famous book, that type of pilgrimage I, I feel confident in. To the degree that you may want to go on a geographical location pilgrimage to help you, I think there can be places where you may go somewhere that stirs the heart and, and spiritually you connect for some historical reason or other that could be beneficial, but not in some legalistic mechanical way. What does anointing with oil actually do? James 5, 13 to 17. I have many people anointed, prayed over, and laid hands on, but what is actually happening here? It doesn't appear to change their health. In fact, it, 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 some even die right after. Am I missing something? Yes, you're missing the historical context because this anointing comes uh, to Protestantism through the magic, the magical and superstitious teaching of the Roman system where they have holy oils and they have holy water and they have holy little wafers that turn into flesh. They have all this magical stuff within that system and we, we threw some of it off, but then this, this anointing with oil from James, we, we find this talked about and we've carried over this, there must be something magical happening in this sacramental way when we anoint with oil. That's not what the actual context meant um, as far as I understand. And so I paraphrased it this way in James um, 5, uh, 13 through 15. It says, is anyone in trouble? Talk to God about it. Is anyone happy? Sing songs of praise. If anyone's sick, be sure to call the spiritual leaders to ask God to intervene and to treat you with appropriate medicinals, such as applying soothing oil, working in harmony with God's designs, methods, and principles. At after asking God to intervene, trust him enough to follow his methods and principles. This will heal the character 
And if it is in harmony with the Lord's plan, result in making the sick physically well, and the Lord will raise him up. The oil was not a sacrament in James's day. If you look and read widely through scripture, oil was used to bind and cleanse wounds. When the good, when the good Samaritan helped the person, he put oil on his wounds. Okay, this was a medicinal. He's saying clean and bandage the wounds, use the medicinals to bring comfort, but also pray. Don't do one or the other, do both. Do the best that you can biologically in harmony with the laws of health and pray for God's supernatural interventions as well. And if you do that, trusting God, your character will be healed and you will have peace and you, your body may also be healed. And that's what's actually going on there. Unfortunately, um, the oil, there is another benefit I'll mention as a psychiatrist. The oil may also ask, act as a placebo. And placebos are real in the sense of, if somebody, we've done, we've done functional scans on people's brains, and if they are getting a sugar pill, but they believe it's a pain pill, their brain will release endorphins and enkephalins, which actually stimulate the brain's opiate receptors, and they get physiologic pain relief. But if they know it's a sugar pill, the brain will not release the endorphins and enkephalins. And so there's a different physiological, neurological consequence based on the change in belief. To the degree someone has great belief in this thing, they can, they can get a physiological placebo effect that can have a positive effect on how they feel and perhaps even, and we do also know that the immune system will calm down if you have a positive thing that you believe you're blessed by God, your, your inflammatory cascade will reduce, your immune system will, will epigenetically change to be more antiviral and less um, carcinogenic and so you may get a, a very positive immune response um, from a, an anointing as well. So there could be a physiological effect of doing it to the degree the person really believes and is impacted by that. Um, so I think those things are probably involved in this as well. Tim? Yes. Uh, AHS stands for American Historical Society. Okay, all right, thank you. What did Jesus purchase at the cross? Jesus paid it all. Did he buy our souls from the devil? What, uh, so what does the devil do with the payment? So. So, no, he did not buy anything from the devil. Uh, if you want to use this, this metaphor, this metaphor of purchase, if your child was dying of renal failure and you donated a kidney, could we say you paid a price to save your child? There is a price being paid there, isn't there? Is it a legal price? And are you buying with your kidney something from the hospital administration? No. Why is this price necessary? Why do you have to pay this price? Because the condition requires it. Objective reality, the laws of health require it. And so the price being paid, and the Bible uses the ransom uh, price, a ransom metaphor is the price necessary to free one held in bondage. Okay, what actually holds human sinners in bondage? Two elements hold us in bondage. The lies that, that Satan tells about God that we believe, and then the truth will... Set you free. So one ransom price is the truth. And Jesus came, lived, died to reveal the truth to free us from the lies and win us back to trust. But that's only one of the elements that hold us in bondage. There's another element that holds us in bondage. Our own selfish nature, our own carnal nature. We need a new heart and right spirit. And so Jesus came and he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And thus, in Christ, 
the elements of fear and self-centeredness, he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, were crucified or destroyed, and he restored God's perfect law of love in the humanity that he possessed, and thus he becomes the new head of, of, uh, of the hum human race. And we receive from Christ the, the truth, the bread, and the blood, the life, and we get a new life from Christ. And so the ransom price is the price to free us from the lies and the price to destroy the infection of fear and selfishness and give us a new heart. And so that ransom price is paid to every sinner who exercises faith in Jesus Christ. We partake of it. The Father doesn't partake of it. The devil doesn't receive it. We receive it. So when we hear news of terrorists committing heinous crimes towards the defenseless, defenseless human beings, are, we, uh, are they demon-possessed? Are they reprobate human pe uh, people like Satan that God can never convert? What are your thoughts? Yes. <laughs> yes, it's a combination, yes. And we are either aligning ourselves with God and the Holy Spirit or we're aligning ourselves with demonic forces. And whether they're fully demonic, demonly possessed or simply open to the influence of what the demons would do, the behaviors are demonic to do those things, whether they're simply carrying out. But, and so we are either becoming like Christ or are we becoming like Christ's enemy? Since Matthew 24 is the end time troubles and Jesus warns woe to pregnant women, is there ever a time when Christian couples should stop trying to conceive? Let me, let me see if I can conceive of that. I would say, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Um, will there be a time? Well, Jesus said when we get to heaven, that we like angels, neither marry or giving in marriage, maybe that'll be the time. I don't know. I, I, I certainly would not suggest that, uh, that, that that happen. I think the devil would like to use an idea like this to get good Christian people to stop having good Christian families so that the world would be taken over by the unchristian and ungodly. So... How do you see the current evil in Israel in relation to end-time Bible prophecy? The ladies in my Bible study group saying, this feels different, and I agree. Where do you see the current evil in Israel in relation? Yeah, okay, same question. Um, so, I don't know if I should talk about this or not. <laughs> I would tell you to, to um, I'm going to actually tell you, I wrote a blog on this. Let me see if I'll find the name on it. Um, just not too long ago, actually. And uh, yes, I want to get you the exact name so you can find it. Uh, maybe it would be helpful if I spelled things right on my own website. Israel and the Promised Land Today is the name of the blog. Israel and the Promised Land Today. I encourage you just to read that blog, and I think you'll get the gist of what I think is happening and why. Um, I will tell you that uh, war, no matter where it happens, is of Satan. Amen. Yep. Doesn't matter where it's happening. God, the Holy Spirit is not inspiring people to go to war and kill each other. It's not coming from that. So you can know what, what, whether, it's, whether it was the U.S. Civil War, whether it was World War I, World War II, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, what's happening uh, in Israel. None of this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's all the kingdoms of the world. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. That's what we're seeing. I personally don't think anything more significant than that is actually happening. 
but there are elements that the devil can use certain geographical locations and conflicts to draw people into a false understanding of Bible prophecy. Exactly. And so I would just tell you to be careful. We are seeing the law of sowing and reaping. Yeah, there's that too. Mm -hmm. yes. Somebody said, so God will change my mind if I ask him? Through the methods that God uses, yes. He will present truth and love and give you the freedom to decide to reject the falsehoods and, and, and lies that, uh, that need to be rejected if you've been holding to falsehoods, and thus, through the revelation of truth and love, and your choice to accept and apply them, your mind will be changed. If you're asking, Lord, while I sleep tonight, come in and do an edit, so when I wake up tomorrow, I'll have a completely different belief system, ain't gonna happen. But yes, he will change your mind through the methods he does to change your mind. You said, no, your desires. I'm 76 and I'm unable to do anything. Am I able to have a, that super sanctification you spoke of? I feel hopeless. Yes, absolutely. The super, read, read my blog on um, last generation theology. Last generation theology. Read my blog on that. Last generation theology. Who are the perfect? Who are the perfect? They're the ones who are like Job, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are all sinners, but they came to a faith relationship with God uh, that nothing could shake them from it. They didn't have all the answers. They had questions. Job wanted. Job. Job had lots of. I want to talk to God. I've got some stuff to have. I got a bone to pick. But but his attitude was. But I know God is right, and I know when we have this conversation, it'll get worked out. He wasn't rejecting and betraying his trust in God. He was struggling to understand why it was all happening. He wanted to have a conversation with God so it could be worked out. That that the righteous do. And that is, is who the perfect are. They're settled into such security and faith in God that no matter what they go through, they will not betray their trust in God. They are loyal to him. Well, we have some more questions, and we're so late, I'm just going to close up, and we'll take these questions next week. Let's close our prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your mercy. Pray that you will continue to guide us in all that we're doing, that we can advance your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>